0: family. Welcome once again to the teaching for this week. If I haven't had the chance to meet you, my name is John and I have the great privilege of being the pastor at Reality. Our teaching today is based on 1 Corinthians 14, starting in verse 26. So I invite you to uh, read along with me. What then, brothers and sisters? Whenever you come together, each one has a hymn, a teaching, a revelation, a tongue, or an interpretation. Everything is to be done for building up. If anyone speaks in a tongue, there are to be two, or at the most three, each in turn and let someone interpret. But if there's no interpreter, that person is to keep silent in the church and speak to himself and God. Two or three prophets should speak and the others should evaluate. But if something has been revealed to another person sitting there, the first prophet should be silent. For you can all prophesy one by one so that everyone may learn and everyone may be encouraged. And the prophet's spirits are subject to the prophets, since God is not a God of disorder but of peace. As in all the churches of the saints, the woman should be silent in the churches. We're getting to a controversial part of the passage here. For they are not permitted to speak, but are submit themselves, as the law also says. If they want to learn something, let them ask their own husbands at home, since it is disgraceful for a woman to speak in the church. Or did the word of God originate from you, or did it come to you only? If anyone thinks he is a prophet or spiritual, he should recognize that what I write to you is the Lord's command. If anyone ignores this, he will be ignored. So then, my brothers and sisters, be eager to prophesy and do not forbid speaking in tongues, but everything is to be done decently and in order. This is God's word. Well, a spicy passage for us today as we continue on in our series of learning about what is the church. And today we're going to look at uh, an important part of what it means to be the church, and that's the gathering, the times that we gather together. Now for many of us the word uh, church is synonymous with the gathering. If I say I'm going to church what we usually mean is I'm going to a building uh, on a Sunday where I'm going to meet with a bunch of Christians for probably an hour, an hour and a half, we're going to sing some songs together, I'm going to hear some teaching and then I'm going to come home. Uh, And so this is an important part of the rhythms, but the Bible actually speaks very little about these gatherings or what happens. We have very little information about the gatherings of the early church. And I think that's the first thing I want to say to us is that I think if we were to zoom out and look then at what the Bible says about what it means to be the church or what is the church as we're exploring in this series, it's that Sunday gatherings are really important. Um, We're going to spend some time exploring it today. I do think it's absolutely worthwhile to explore, but they're not ever Everything that the church is much bigger than a Sunday gathering. And no time, I think, in my life, anyways, has this been made more obvious or clear than during the pandemic. Because we see both sides of the gathering in the pandemic. I don't know about you, but but I think for many people, uh there the at the beginning of the pandemic, when we were able to stay home and to you know watch from the comforts of our living room there was kind of a, a joy there like oh this is kind of a nice break that i just get to be at home you know make my own coffee stay in my sweatpants and uh you know kind of just take in what's happening in the sunday gathering but as the pandemic wore on longer and longer and we weren't able to meet in person uh, i think many of us felt this draw like this desire to go back and meet together so i'll be honest with you one of the things i enjoy least about gathering together is singing i i don't ever in any other time of my life, just think, you know what I should do is just gather a couple buds and we'll just have a nice little sing along. That's just not who I am. But as the um, as the pandemic went on longer and longer, I found myself longing to get together with other followers of Jesus and sing together because um, it's an important rhythm for me. And I think many of us felt that way, that we, we may not have in the first part of the pandemic felt like we missed church or the church gathering. But as it went on longer and longer, we realized the importance of it in our lives. But at the same time, many different leaders have talked about how the pandemic has exposed that maybe the Sunday gathering has taken up too high of a position for us in the Western church, that we're too dependent on Sunday uh, for doing everything in the church. And so when Sunday was taken away, a lot of us were like, I don't even really know what else I do as a Christian. To be a Christian was to go to church, which meant to go on Sundays. And so I think it's, it's actually been a good thing to, do, to ask the question, like I said, for a wider question on us of what does it mean to follow Jesus in all of my life, of which the Sunday gathering is an important rhythm and an important discipline, but not everything. So that, that's, the Bible doesn't talk about uh, the Sunday gatherings or the, the um, Sabbath gatherings of the early church too much. And when it does, there are actually differences between um, the the gatherings. They have different elements. They focus on different things. And so I think what that means to us is that we should feel freedom to carefully, you know, search the scriptures and to understand what the early church did, but also to look at our own context and think about what it might mean for us to gather uh, together today and to to turn ourselves over towards the story of Jesus. Now, in this passage, as we talked about last week, we looked at uh, a, a couple of chapters earlier. Paul is addressing the problems with the gathering of the Corinthian church. If you remember, there are five problems in Corinthians. This is the fourth one, and Paul is addressing this, the, the problems that they have when they do gather together. And I think as we explore together, I want to focus on three things uh, this morning. The first is to, the goals of the gathering. The second is the practices of the gathering. And then the third is the center of the gathering. So the goals... The practices and the center so let's get going what is the goal of the gathering what is it that we are supposed to be doing well paul says in verse 26 that everything is to be done for the building up everything is to be done for the building up so Paul has this idea that we are becoming somebody, that we are growing and I'll remind you of, of his vision from last week when we read 1 Corinthians 13. This is a very famous passage about love um, and it's often read at weddings but in the context here it's actually talking about the gathering together that we have as followers of Jesus. So Paul writes, But as for prophecies they'll come to an end, as for tongues they will cease, as for knowledge it will come to an end. So Paul's just spent a lot of time talking about these gifts and how we should desire them and how we should practice them. But he says they're all going to end. We need them, but they're not the end goal of themselves. For he continues, for we know in part and we prophesy in part, but when the perfect comes, the partial will come to an end. This is really important for us to hear. Is the goal of being a Christian and gathering together to know everything, to fill our minds so that we have a perfect knowledge of God and we have him all squared away and our theological systems are all perfect? No, actually Paul says. It's not wrong to do that and of course we want to gain a more clear picture of who God is but Paul is warning us here that we'll only ever know partially. For us there's a vision of something farther away when the perfect comes that we'll actually know uh, in a more full way that we can't know now. He just says a few verses later, for now we only see as a reflection in a mirror, but then we'll see face to face. Again, a really important thing for us to see that the kind of knowledge that we gain about God is not a book knowledge or a test knowledge, but it's a relational knowledge. It's a face to face knowledge. We'll see face to face, and that's when we'll become perfected or our understanding will be perfected. He says, now I know in part, but then I will know fully, even as I am fully known. This is one of those verses that for me means a lot, that there's this great hope that I may know God, not to try to um, box him in or to try to have control over him so that I know him, but I will know him in a way that's so deep that it's just the way that he knows me. That's a great hope for me. Paul continues, when I was a child I spoke like a child, I thought like a child, I reasoned like a child, but when I became a man I put childish things aside. So Paul in this earlier passage is saying exactly the same thing that we just saw. The building up of the Christian, where he'd say the growing up is the focus. And what are we to grow up into? He finishes off this passage by saying, now these three remain, faith, hope, and love, but the greatest of these is love. That's the vision for Paul of gathering together, that we grow up into the love of Christ becoming more and more like the person of Christ, longing to see him face to face and having our faces more resemble his face. And that's what the vision of, uh, of the community of followers is together as we, as we meet together, is, is to have this happen not only individually, but as a community, to build each other up into the love and person of Jesus. Paul says it slightly different a little later in the passage, verse 31. He says, the goal is so that everyone may learn and everyone may be encouraged. So it's twofold goal, that we would grow up and that we would learn and be encouraged. Now, the word learn here is has the underlying word of methetes, which we might tra- uh, translate disciple or apprentice. So again, it's not just a book type of knowledge, although it would include that but it's, it's a, a, a knowledge of being an apprentice, of learning a way of life, of becoming more and more like your rabbi. That is the goal, that everyone will learn how to become like Jesus. And the second part is to be encouraged, and that's a compound Greek word, para kaleo, two parts. The first part para, it means to come alongside, like a paramedic comes alongside you and comes alongside uh, the hospital as they treat people on the way to the hospital. That's what we're supposed to do, is to come alongside each other and come alongside the work of God in each other's lives. And the word kaleo has a couple different meanings, but one of them means to speak. So we come alongside each other and we encourage one another. We exhort one another, sometimes we spur each other on, we might say or hear in the Bible, that we call each other to to follow Jesus. We, We speak the word of God and remind ourselves that all the rest of our week as we gather together, our hearts are pulled in different directions and we're invited to different visions of the good life that cause us to worship things other than Jesus. But we come together, we come alongside one another and we speak out to each other and say, no, the true story is the story of Jesus. He is reigning and ruling. And this is our story. And the second part of what it means is not only to speak, but, but it means to name. And I love this translation of the word that we come alongside each other and we name what is going on in each other's lives, but we also name who we are. That all again, throughout the week, maybe you're pulled in different directions with your identity, that you're called, you know, you think that what, the greatest name that you could have is someone who is rich or to be a perfect mom or whatever it is, all these other identities that pull us in different directions and when we come together we're supposed to come alongside to each other, speak to each other and remind us of the name that Jesus has given us. I think again of the passage in Mark 1 when Jesus is baptized It says, God says to him, this is my son in whom I am well pleased. And when we, we follow Jesus, when we come alongside of him and received his invitation and his spirit takes up dwelling in us, that name is ours. So when we gather together, we remind ourselves that your true name, your name in other contexts of your life may be different, but your true name, the truest person that you are is a child of God. And that is the name that you have and the name that you are invited to carry out into the world. So for Paul, that's the, that's the goal of what we do when we gather together, that we build up and we grow into people that look like Jesus. And we come alongside each other and we learn and we encourage each other together. Now what are the practices that help us to get to that goal? I want to look quickly at three of them. Verse 26 gives us the first one, it says, What then, brothers and sisters? Whenever you come together, each one has a hymn, a teaching, a revelation, a tongue, or an interpretation. Now this gives us the first practice, and it's the practice of participation, that each of us has a role to play in the gathering as part of the body of Christ. We looked at this last week, but Paul says it again here, each one has something to bring, whether it's a hymn, or a revelation, or an interpretation, we all have something to bring to the gathering. And the focus, so the focus here is not so much on what I receive in coming to the gathering, how I'm going to necessarily be built up, but Paul is encouraging us that we actually have something to contribute and something to be to give, that's, that's our focus. So I might say it this way, it's less like, the gathering should be less like going to a movie where we pay our fee, and then we sit there and we enjoy the movie or we don't, but we're kind of passive involvements and trying to look to be entertained, living as consumers. But the, the, the vision is more like actually going to the gymnasium. That when we do that, I don't say gymnasium, uh, like I'm, I don't know, from the 1940s, but the, when we go to the gym or when we work out, you know, there's a different set of priorities when we work out, that we want to become this certain kind of person. And for many of us, we know that working out, it may not be fun, especially if we haven't done it in a long time. But we keep that goal and that vision of becoming like Jesus in our hearts and in our minds. And so we discipline ourselves to gather together. And and we discipline ourselves to participate in that gathering. Just like you go to the gym, if you just stand around and watch other people working out, uh, not only will they probably kick you out, uh, but you will not get any more fit. And the Bible is saying the same way. As we come to the gathering together, we're invited to participate to be active participants and then slowly over time will we become more and more like Jesus. It's a discipline, just like going to the gym, you become more and more fit the more you participate. And so the gathering is not a show that I watch, but a community that I'm invited to participate in. And so when, when we choose not to come to the gathering, everyone misses out. It's the coming together and offering of the different gifts that we have and the different perspectives that we have on, on God that, that actually facilitates this growing and this learning. So if you don't do that, if you choose not to come, it doesn't just affect you, the rest of the community misses out. Or if you come but you choose not to participate, you choose to be one of those passive engaged, engaged people, then we also miss out. It's not just that you uh, miss out on, on using your gifts and uh, participating and blessing the rest of us, coming alongside of the rest of us and speaking our names, but we also miss out on all of that too. This is, uh, you know, the, the, the first question in this um, passage that we read, what then, brothers and sisters, used to be translated, how is it then, brethren? How is it then, brethren? Which kind of sounds like Newfie, you know, what do what you at, brother? You know, kind of that kind of thing. It doesn't even, we're not even sure what to make sense of it. But this word, brethren, here is uh, where the, the MB term comes from, Mennonite brethren. Because what happened in the early church or the early Mennonite brethren is that they broke with the reformed tradition. They both valued the Bible, so they broke with the Catholic church because they said each person should be reading the Bible and uh, have have this kind of uh, relationship with God that doesn't have to be uh, brokered through the church. But the Mennonites felt that um, looked at this passage specifically and they said that each person should be participating in the church. We should have a brethren model or a brother and sister model. And the reformers had more of a hierarchical church model that you come and you have to listen to the pastor and he's the person speaking with all the authority. And so in the brethren tradition, they take this very seriously. Even though the word is like a really weird word for us today, uh, brethren, it's not something I use very often, um, that's the heart of it. The heart of it is this passage that it's not just clergy who are invited to participate, but it's whole body participating with the different gifts that we bring. Um, There's a speaker, his name is Mark Scandrett, and he talks about an implicit contract that we have with Sundays, and specifically with with preaching that reinforce um, this kind of passive model. He says the existing contract usually between a speaker and the listener is, is that my job is to be brilliant, authoritative, wise, entertaining, and funny. And I know I hit that out of the park every week, so thank you for, uh, thank you in advance for your emails that will say that. But he says, and then your job is to take notes, laugh at my jokes, and tell me good message. And that's a great sermon if that could happen. But the question is to look, or what we have to do is look at the goals of what Paul has put out. Does that contract and that style of church, does that actually lead to transformation? Which is Paul's ultimate goal if we were to put it in a word. Is that going to be, as Paul also says, a witness to the watching world of the presence of God in our midst? That we don't live in this imminent frame, but there's a God who is present and active within us. And so Scandrett says, what if, we, what if we tried something new instead? More of this model that Paul puts forward in, in 1 Corinthians 14. He says, I'll be honest, and I invite you to be honest as well. And to pay attention in your life to where the Spirit as work is at work. So as we speak together, as we look at this passage, as you meet with people, where do you feel resistance? Where do you feel a sense of of a draw or or, um, a pull towards something? Where do you sense a call to action? Where do you feel a call to repentance? Where might you feel God's arms just coming and wrapping around you? And first Gandret, he says, this is like this is what we've talked about as God's watching, watching and waiting, sorry, for God's spirit at work. These are the moments where God's presence is actually tapping us on the shoulder and saying, I am here. I am with you. I want to lead you into this kind of person. So he says, I invite you to be honest, to pay attention to where the spirit is at work, and then to take a risk to participate, both in the gathering, but also in being part of the church and learning to love one another. And I think that's a better contract for us as we come to gather together. That, that to me is more true of First Corinthians 14, rather than I'm just going to perform and you're going to enjoy or not or not enjoy, I guess. But it, instead, it's, it's an invitation to participate together. That's the first practice that Paul is calling the Corinthian church to, and I think he's also calling us to, participating together. Now, if everyone's encouraged to participate, this brings up some, some questions for us. And the first is, how do we stop the gathering from devolving into absolute chaos? If people are just like, well, I, I'm gonna do this and I'm gonna say this, how do we stop it from just devolving into chaos? And this is where we get this very infamous passage about women. And uh, we usually, all we usually know is the part that says women should be silent in all the churches. Um, But I want to, we're not going to dive super deep into this. If you have questions, feel free to send me an email and we will chat more about it. But I want to just point out three things for our time together today. The first is this, that Paul likely cannot mean what we think of if we just look at this passage, taking it at face value. Which is to say that women just can never talk in the gathering. They have to be silent. And I don't say that because it's not just because I don't like that. I wish that weren't true and I I wish that wasn't true. Like, I have to be honest with you about that. I don't think we should silence women in the congregation. But I say that because a couple of chapters earlier, Paul is giving instructions on how both men and women should dress in order so that they're not a distraction when they are engaging in public speaking in the church community. So Paul here and elsewhere assumes that women are active participants and speaking in the gathering together. It's in chapter 11. I'm not going to read it because we'll open up new cans of worms for us so you can take a look at it. But it's one of several passages in Paul's writing where he assumes women and even encourages women to be speaking in the gathering. So I don't think unless he's had amnesia or something between chapter 11 and chapter 14 that Paul can actually mean that women are to be silent all the time in the church. The second is that women are not commanded to be silent because they're deficient or unable to contribute. They're not, There's not something lesser about women that, that therefore they should be silent. So let's read the passage together and I want you to focus on who is told to be silent. If anyone speaks in a tongue, there are to be only two or at the most three, each in turn and let someone interpret but if there's no interpreter, let that person keep silent in the church and speak to himself and God. So this is around the use of the gift of tongues. If there's no interpreter, the person is to keep silent. Paul continues, two or three prophets should speak and the others should evaluate, but if something has been revealed to another person sitting there, the first prophet should be silent. There's that word again. For you can all prophesy one by one so that everyone can learn and everyone can be encouraged. So, if you've read the rest of of 1 Corinthians or you've were with us last week, are the gifts bad? Is the gift of tongues or the gift of prophecy bad? No, in fact, Paul is very encouraging of the church and encouraging of us to to have these gifts. They're good things, but yet he still commands them to be silent. So the passage continues. As in all the churches of the saints, the women also should be silent in the churches. So he's called three groups of people to be silent. None of them are because of a deficiency. It's not because women are second-class citizens or they're dumb or anything like that, uh, but they're following this pattern that we see. So that's not because of a deficiency. So this is the third point. What is actually happening in this passage? Well, there's lots of theories uh, that are interesting and uh, happy to have a coffee with you and chat about them. One of them that makes the most sense to me and has gained a lot of um, uh, steam in, in lots of, with lots of commentators comes from a guy named Kenneth Bailey. Now he's written a couple of great books, uh, Jesus Through Middle Eastern Eyes and Paul Through Middle Eastern Eyes, both awesome. Paul Through Middle Eastern Eyes is about 1 Corinthians, so it's five essays on the five problems of the church. Now Bailey, he's a very interesting scholar because he's a Western guy, as his name would suggest, but he spent the majority of his life actually in Africa and in the Middle East, where he's ministered uh, and been a missionary and a scholar there. So in his, he shares from an experience that it's very common in, in the churches that he's visited to have men on one side of the church and women on the other side of the church when they gather together. Now you'll know as well there's like lots of Mennonite jokes that if men are all on one side of a table and women are on the other side of the table. Like we call this like, oh, it's a Mennonite meeting or something like that. And it wasn't that long ago that that many groups of people would be organized this way. Now, it's not to say that you, you need to like this or approve of it, but it's just that that's the way that groups of people have organized themselves for a very long time and Bailey would say when he has joined churches this is pretty often the case. Now they would have a church service together and the church service would often be informal or classic Arabic. Now the men would understand formal or classic Arabic because they have been trained in it but oftentimes the women wouldn't. They were only fluent in their local dialect and only had a little bit of classic Arabic. But Bailey would preach and he would preach in this formal Arabic and the whole service would be in formal Arabic. And uh, none of the kids or the women then would understand what was going on. And soon enough, the kids and the women would start chatting with one another. Sometimes they were just starting to talk, you know, they get bored. He said he'd often be asked to preach for an hour. And they just imagine that you don't understand what he's saying. You're just sitting there. You start talking with your neighbor. Or sometimes they might ask their neighbor to translate for them. Like, do you know what this word the speaker just used is? But he said as he was preaching, eventually the noise from the women and children would get so loud that one of the elders in the community, one of the male elders, would stand up and say, Hey, will the women please be quiet? And he said this would happen every about ten or fifteen minutes, because people would slowly the, the the noise in the room would start to rise, and then the elder would stand up. And he said oftentimes they would say to them, Ask your husbands at home when what what is saying, but please be quiet during this time of the service. And this makes a I think a lot of sense to me and to many other scholars, uh, or many other, like I'm a scholar, many scholars of the Bible of what's happening in the Corinthian church. Bailey writes this. He says, Paul is very polite, even though it sounds like he's saying an atrocious thing maybe to us in our context. He's, he says, Paul is actually very polite in this passage. He doesn't say, women, you chat more in church than uh, during the sermon than you do in the marketplace or in the baths, as some other uh, commentators might have said. Some of the women, probably seated in linguistic groups, are no doubt asking their neighbors about the meaning of this or that word in Greek because they didn't know it. Paul picks up on these legitimate questions and, and in effect says, I know your Greek is limited, but your husbands have learned a bit more Greek than you and, and then you have managed to absorb because they've had to do it in order to function in their job, to function in the marketplace of their world. You have not had this chance and it's not your fault. But things have gotten out of hand on a number of levels. Uh, it could be a... Maybe a good statement for reality. Please be helpful and put your questions to your husbands after you return home. I've just told the speakers when to be quiet. This is a situation in which you also need to listen quietly, even if you can't follow what is being said. And so, what's the second practice that we can learn from what's going on in here, if Bailey is correct? Is it that the practice is to make sure that we keep women silent all the time in church? No, I don't think so. What we are called to do is participate in the gathering with our gifts both men and women as we've seen Paul say, but we must limit ourselves for the betterment of everyone else here. The word that's used in this passage is, I will submit my preferences and my gifts to the good of the group. The goal of gathering is not coming so that I get to express myself and do whatever I want, but the purpose of the gathering, as we've seen already, is to be built up, for everyone to be built up so that we can learn and be encouraged. And so when my, uh, who I, what I am and what I bring to the table doesn't help that, I will learn to quiet myself for the good of other people. So that's how Paul addresses the first problem of everyone participating. That instead of it becoming a chaotic, uh, you know, very loud group of people, that instead what it's supposed to be is we learn to limit ourselves for the betterment of the group. We submit to one another out of love for one another so that we can grow and that we can learn what it means to become like Jesus. So here's a second that might question that might come up if everyone is invited to participate in the gathering. How do we know if a word is spoken from God? What if some person stands up and says oh I have a prophecy and you know they're kind of just speaking out of left field. How do we know that that person uh, is speaking from God? Verse 29 Paul says two or three prophets should speak and the others should evaluate. So what we're called to do is evaluate what people are doing and saying in the group. Now, again, the question is, how did this happen in the early church? And I think this is an area that we culturally miss what is happening going on. And and oftentimes what can be happening in our own heads is like, I don't necessarily agree with everything that the speaker is saying. And so I'm going to discount everything that the speaker is saying. But I want to point out a uniqueness in uh, how this happened in the early church. And I noticed this um, as I read through the New Testament, that what we often see in the New Testament, or it it caused me to ask this question, because what we often see in in the New Testament is, is some person, a man, usually like Jesus or Paul or Peter, and they go into a synagogue. And they read a passage in the Hebrew Scriptures, and then they give an interpretation of it. And that interpretation makes everybody angry. And I've often wondered about this as a person who's been privileged to lead in our community. Like if I heard that there was this heretical teacher going around Vancouver and he you know, emailed us and said, hey, can I come speak at your church? I think I have a word from God and so I'd like to expound the scriptures at your church. I'd be like, no way, Like you can't come and like start uh, interpreting the scripture for us. But this is not the way that it happened in the early church and the synagogue. As we see in this passage, anyone can stand up and use their gifts. That's what Paul's been talking about. So if you have, you think you have a spiritual gift, you can stand up and use it. And the others are called to evaluate. And this is how it would work in the synagogue specifically. A speaker would speak, they're invited to open the scroll and read it, and then they would, They would give an interpretation of it. And the elders would be sitting in the front row, as you see in this picture. And the elders' job was to evaluate what was being said for the community. So each person, of course, is going to be evaluating, but the elders are the ones who evaluate. And they would ask sometimes to hear more. We see this happening with Paul, that the leaders who are there, the people who are either elders or leaders, they're like, hey, tell us more about what you're saying. Or sometimes they challenge the speaker. They ask questions, or sometimes they express their disapproval, as we see oftentimes in the ministry of Jesus, that the Pharisees or the the head rulers are expressing disapproval at what Jesus is saying and chase him out of the temple. But other times they would also give their approval, and they would do this by saying, amen, amen, amen. Or as you might see it translated in your Bibles, truly, truly, or if you have an old Bible, verily, verily. And when Jesus takes on these words, when he tells you, truly, truly, I say to you, that's what he's doing is he's saying, I, I am the true elder. I am the one who can interpret the scriptures because they all lead to me. And so it's very offensive, actually, to the early uh, elders, the, the leaders of the synagogue, because Jesus was saying, I'm the one who not only interprets the scripture, but I also give my yes and amen to something. But this is how it would work in the early church, that the elder's job was to say yes to something that's happening. So what would the elders uh, evaluate the speakers on. Well, it's really God. <clears throat> excuse me, God's story. Uh, in verse 32, Paul continues: "The prophets' spirits are subject to the prophets, since God is not a God of disorder but of peace." What is Paul referencing here? Well, where have we? He's referencing two things: that the prophets' spirits are subject to the prophets, to the prophets that they would have, which is the Hebrew Scriptures. So we're going to test everything that they say by the Scriptures and what these prophets have said. And then the second part says that since God is not a God of disorder, but a God of peace. So where have we recently heard a story that starts with disorder, but has God intervening and ends in shalom? If you recall back to our summer, we did a long study on Genesis 1, and this is the basic storyline there, that God takes the chaos waters, the tohu abohu, the wild and the waste, and the desert land, and he turns it into this beautiful gardening, garden, which is made for the flourishing of, of the whole cosmos. Now that doesn't mean that everything, so this is the story that we're invited to and the God behind the story is, is the one who is the ultimate measuring stick for what people say. It's the order of God's character and action. Now I need to be very careful because in Western culture we often think like that means if we, we want the uh, service to end at 1030 and it goes to 1035, we've somehow failed because God is now a God of disorder. That's obviously not what's happening in the early church. Rather, they're focusing on the character of God. They look back to the evaluate through the story of the Bible which reveals the character of God. And it's not, it also means that the goal is not to see if each speaker agrees with every minute piece of my theology. You know, I'd say, oh, that speaker, she, you know, she believes in double predestination, I only believe in single predestination, so I'm not gonna listen to anything that she has to say. That's going right back to bounded set thinking. Instead, it's encouraging a focus on a person, as we saw. That's the goal for Paul, that God is a God of order and we're focused in on him. And when we look at God's word, it climaxes in a person, in Jesus. And so that's the question that the elders are asking. Does it look like Jesus? Does it sound like Jesus? Does this smell like Jesus? Is it helping me, helping us to become more like Jesus. And that's the center of the gathering, which I'll just mention very quickly here at the end. That's Jesus for Paul and for us and for the early church. That the center of the gathering is the person of Jesus and becoming more like him. Those passages that we're looking at is sandwiched between two other passages in Corinthians. One is uh, chapter 11 where Paul talks about the the Lord's Supper, uh, what we call communion. And it says that we do this in remembrance of Jesus, that we come together around a table and we remind ourselves that our God gave his body and his blood for us. And Paul says we will proclaim the Lord's death until he comes. That this is what who we are and what unites us together. That d- despite our differences, whether they be theological differences or differences in gender or differences in perspective and opinion, that we come together around the table And we unite ourselves around our God who broke his body and gave his blood for us. That the God uh, of the entire world didn't hold on to what it meant to be God but became a person, became a human. Not only a human but a slave, a servant. Not only a servant but died. Not only did he die but he died an embarrassing death in order to bring us into the family of God, and that overcomes the differences that we have when we choose the path of downward mobility to humble ourselves with him. That's how Jesus is the center, and that's why communion is such an important part of what it means to be the family of God, because it's a practice of coming together and uniting ourselves in Jesus rather than choosing our differences, which can bring disunity. And then that's, so that's one side of the passage. The other is, is uh, 1 Corinthians 15, which comes just after this passage that we read and starts with these words. It says, For I passed on to you as most important what I received. Paul says this is the most important thing. And what is it? It's that this Jesus who has died for our sins, according to the scripture, as Paul has said, isn't, hasn't remained dead, but is alive, that he's been resurrected. So Jesus is the center of our gathering because he brings us hope and he is alive. And Not only does that mean that he is present with us, whether we're watching all around, you know, the world or watching in in our homes around Vancouver, that God is actually present with us when we choose to make time and make space for him. When we choose to participate, when we choose to watch and wait for his Holy Spirit and listen to him as as we have the word open in front of us. That he is not dead, but he's alive. He's in our midst and he's leading and guiding us. That the presence of the risen God is here and that gives us hope gives us hope that no matter what's going on in the rest of our lives, no matter that we only see partially now, as Paul says, that we have this great hope of fullness, that we get to be with Jesus and walk with him and see him face to face and to know him as we are fully known. And it's these two things, that sandwiching in between this passage that we just read that Paul wants to give to us as the center focus of our gatherings. That what we do is we come together and we unite ourselves around Christ. That we have this goal of becoming like him, that we practice together to learn to become like him, that we participate, that we limit ourselves, and that we learn to uh, be quiet when we need to and to express ourselves where where we can. And we learn to evaluate according to God's story, but we come around together around the person and the work of Jesus that gives us hope. That's what we do together as a church family. And wherever you are watching this, I encourage you, if you're with other people, to take some time, maybe to, to have some communion together. It's to take some time and talk about what, what's standing out to you. What's the Spirit saying in this time? I, I don't know what's going on in your life, but you can share that with one another. And then to join each other in praying together. So let me just pray for you as we close. God, we thank you so much for your word, for your offer to be with us. That it's such an amazing thing that um, as we even look a couple months ahead towards Christmas, the the name that you choose uh, is Emmanuel, God with us, that you long to be with us. So thank you for your presence with us today, wherever we are and wherever we're listening to this. May we be the cent- you be the center of our gathering together. Uh, no matter where we are, that we would be able to come together around you and remind ourselves that even if we're not with anyone else, we take the bread and the cup with with millions of other Christians, billions of other Christians around the world today, but also throughout history, proclaiming your death until you come again. So may that be true about our lives and I pray that the hope of the resurrection would be something that guards us, that unifies us and that mobilizes us to be your church in the world. Thank you for this time and your presence with us in the name of Christ, amen.